our Old Testament lesson from Deuteronomy 10. I'm just going to stay down here. It's all right. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 22, which can be found on page 290 in your pew Bibles. This is in the book of Deuteronomy, which is just before the Israelites who had been wandering around in the desert for 40 years before they finally get to go into the promised land. By the way, I should also apologize for the quality of my voice this morning. I had a lot of sneezing that happened earlier, and it just completely tore that up. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> but just before they went into the land... Moses reminds them of everything that they've been through, everything that God has done for them, and what all he has told them before they go in. And so here we have another section of that. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and we thank you for what you have given to us. Thank you for what you have told us. And we thank you for your word that we have that we can read. We thank you for your spirit that you've given to us that we can understand what we read. And God, we thank you for your church that we can read together. And together we can grow by your word and by your spirit into the people that you made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good? To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who, perf- who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Turning then to our New Testament lesson, Matthew 23, verses 13 through 39. We talked last week about the real Jesus, not uh, one that we make in our own image, but the real Jesus. And, uh, And so we get to read today, not just from, uh, from the sweet things that he says, but some of the harsh things that he says. This is Jesus standing in the temple after 
group after group has come to him, uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, they come to him and they try to trap him with question after question. And of course it doesn't work and finally they stop asking questions. And then he starts in on them. Skip down kind of towards the middle, verse 13. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom and heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by, the, that, that, by that oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift of the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore... Anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then, and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is a hard word, but it is a word. It is an important word. We've been looking at Stephen in the book of Acts and the speech that he makes before the Sanhedrin who... Um, are accusing him 
of, or others have been accusing him, and he's now on trial for it, of speaking bad about the land and the temple and the law and Moses. And so Stephen has made this speech where he is showing how he's really not against those things, but he's very much against how these people have been using those things and clinging to those things and yet missing what they were all about and missing the God that they were supposed to be helping the people stay with and to uh, worship him and serve him. And they missed all that. And so they've, they've clung to those things. And they missed it. And yet everything that he said so far, everything he said in the whole speech, which has been really long, up through verse 43, if that's where he'd stopped, they probably wouldn't kill him at the end of the speech. But he doesn't stop there. In fact, everything he said so far has just been building the case for what he's getting ready to say, and it's this next part that actually gets him killed. I mean, he, they were still plenty mad with the first stuff, and he probably would have been severely punished, but probably not the death penalty. Not till this part. And in this part, he uh, talks a lot about our ancestors. It's kind of an interesting way to do this on, on Father's Day. The, the Greek word there is actually the word for fathers. It's kind of like the forefathers ancestors. But he doesn't have any nice things to say about them. <laughs> it's a weird way to celebrate today, I guess. But <clears throat> but he talks a lot about the ancestors. and You know there's somebody in every family. If you're not that person, you know of who it is in your family who really gets into genealogy. You know the one person who in your family, if you don't know, you could go to them and say, hey, my great-grandpa, uh, what was his middle name again? What was the first job he had? Where and when did he marry our great-grandma? And they, they know this stuff. They, they've done the research. They get excited about it. And what's really fun is when you get a, you know, more than one of them together in the same family, and they start comparing notes and talking about all this stuff. And they, yeah, Oh, that's fun. Now, so imagine you're at a family reunion, and you go and you see a group of these people, and they're all talking about the genealogy, and you go up to them and you say, Hey, by the way, I just want you to know, I've been doing a little research into our family. Your whole family, <laughs> well, they've been screw-ups from the beginning. All of them. Every one of them. Also, I see the family resemblance. <laughs> Probably not going to get you invited to the next reunion. <laughs> and that is very much what Stephen is about to say that... Uh, gets him plenty angry, though that's not the worst of it. But they also, beyond that, there's also a little a pronoun shift. Because so far, he has really been identifying with them. I mean, if you did that in a family reunion of your own family, it's like, what are you, what are you talking about? You're our cousin. It's your family, too. And so far, that's what he's been doing the whole way through. It's like, our ancestors. This is our thing. And he starts that way here. But he switches partway through. And instead of our, comes your. And any parent in here knows the difference between you get home and somebody says, guess what our son did today? And you say, I don't know. It must be something good. Or when you get home and they say, guess what your son did today? (laughs) I don't know. But it doesn't sound good. (laughs) 
It's because not only is there going to be the description of what it was that was bad, but you're somehow also <laughs> implicated in this. This is your son. They got this from you. Okay. This is where Stephen takes this whole thing. Um, this is Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 44. He's already gone through a lot of the history of Israel, and he kind of brings it all to conclusion here. He says, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nation God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet said, says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. We're going to have to wait till next week to find out how exactly they respond to this, but I think you can already use your imagination as to how this is going to go. As you hear what he's saying about their ancestors, and then also how he pins this all on them and how not only did all the ancestors do this, but you not only did that, but so much worse than all the previous generations. Now, a couple of things we need to sort of unpack here, and the first has to do with the difference between tabernacle and temple. And I think we need to bring this out because I can remember a time where I would read those in the Bible and did not realize those were two separate things. I really thought that those were just different words for the same thing. Sometimes they call it one, sometimes they call it the other. So just in case there's anybody here who is like I was there, explain this briefly. And for those of you who already know the difference, just, yeah, come along for the ride. Tabernacle was what uh, God gave Moses the pattern of. and said, this is, how you are to, this is what you are to build. And it was a tent, essentially. It was a tent of meeting. And this is where God would meet with Moses, is where he'd meet with the people. And this tent was actually to be in the center of the Israelite camp. And so from the time they were at Mount Sinai until all the wandering in the wilderness, even when they came into the land that God had promised them, the tabernacle, wherever they went, the tabernacle went with them. And the tabernacle was a place where sacrifices were made, offerings were made, where um, you had the the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the tabernacle. And this was a reminder and representation of who God is and what he had done for the people. Inside this Ark, this golden box, they had um, the staff of Aaron's that had budded when it was dead. They had the, um, the jar of manna where God had provided for the Israelites while they were in the wilderness food to eat when there was no food to eat, the way that he had been caring for them. And then uh, there was the Ten Commandments in the Ark. That's why it was called the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. That uh, this is a reminder of who God is and what he's calling his people to and how they are to live. And this 
tabernacle. It was to be in the center of the camp. It's actually specified that it would, okay, it's going to be here, and then these tribes are going to be on this side of it, and these tribes are going to be on this side of it, and these tribes are going to be on this side of it, these tribes are going to be on this side of it, so that it is always in the middle. And it was a symbolic way of saying God and his presence with his people is always to be the center of their life together. In fact, that's what you see at Mount Sinai when he calls them. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. In other words, you are now identified not as those who are slaves in Egypt and not even as those who are just descended from Abraham. You are now those who are my people. That is how you are identified. And so his presence with them was what was so essential. And this was uh, represented in this tabernacle, this tent that would go with them wherever they go. And Stephen points out, though, that that's how it was for a while. Until after David becomes king. And David becomes king. And later in the summer, we're actually going to look more specifically just at David for a while. But right now, when David becomes king, he moves the capital of Israel, which is now a nation. It's not just that promised land. They go into the land and uh, has become this nation that God had promised them. He moves the capital to Jerusalem and he builds a nice palace for himself. And then he says, you know, it doesn't seem right. I mean, I've been on the run for a long time. I've been moving from place to place. King Saul was trying to kill me and all that. But now I'm settled down. I got a nice place. God, you should really get one of these. It doesn't make sense that I would be in this really nice palace and you're still in a tent. And God says, thanks, but no thanks. He says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And of course, it's a play on words where David means building and God means family. But still, he says, you're not going to build me a house. The way that God had chosen to represent himself was in a tent, (laughs) in this temporary dwelling that moves around with the people wherever they go. And that's one of the points that Stephen had been making the whole way through, is that wherever God's people were, whether they were in the land or away from the land, whether they were in exile in Babylon or whether they were in slavery in Egypt or whether in Mount Sinai or wherever they were, God was with them through all of it. And now, uh, what David is saying and wants to do is not have this temporary structure that moves around with the people, but make something permanent and stable and st- that sits there. It doesn't go with the people anymore. Now the people have to come to it. God says, David, you're not going to do that. I'm going to give you a family line that goes on forever. There's going to be somebody on the throne in your family forever. And of course, we see that in Jesus. But he does say that Solomon's going to build it. That Solomon will build a house. And he does. And it's lovely. And people come to it. And that is where they gather to worship God. However, there was something about the tent, besides just its portability, that I think might have been a good thing. And that's that it wasn't impressive. It wasn't large and ostentatious. It was simple and functional. And the people who came there understood why they were coming there. 
And then they get the temple. And it is large, and it is ornate, and it served a very similar purpose. The problem is, now there are also a lot of distractions that come with it. The temple later got destroyed and rebuilt by Herod the Great, and this is the temple that Jesus was standing in when he was saying, Woe to you Pharisees! All the things we just read. And Jesus is preaching in the temple. It's in the temple courts that he turns over the tables, and he says, My father's house is to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a a den of robbers. They've missed the point. They were still coming to the temple, but they missed the point of why it was there. And Jesus' own disciples, and Jesus is preaching about what this is all supposed to be about. And do you remember what the disciples say when they're at the temple? They're not preaching about who God is and what he's about. You know what they say? Say, Jesus, check out how big these stones are. And it doesn't say this in the Bible, but I'm pretty sure at that moment Jesus dropped his head and just, oh. <laughs> Not you too. <laughs> it does say, as he says to them, I tell you the truth, not one stone is going to be standing on another. In other words, even this massive structure that you think is so impressive is temporary, just like the tabernacle was just like that tent. It's not going to last. So if you're coming here and you're paying all your attention to the things that are temporary and you're missing what's eternal, why bother? Now, we have to be very careful with that, though, because it's real easy, and people have done this a lot. They say, you're right. There's a very big difference between the things that are temporary and the things that are eternal. And so what that means is the things that are eternal matter and everything that's that is temporary, doesn't matter. And that is not true. That's not true. And so we see uh, people who say, for theological reasons, hey, this earth is passing away, and we have another earth to come, so we can just destroy this one. And God says, no. (laughs) Yes, this one's passing away, but I still have commanded you to take care of it while you're here. There are people who look at their bodies and say, you know what, we're going to we're all going to die anyway, and then after we're dead, we're Christians, we're going to be raised to new life, and we're going to get brand new bodies, so why bother taking care of this one? And so they trash their bodies. It says, no. <laughs> Take care of your body. And Paul writes, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Even though they're temporary. Honor God with the temporary things that he's given to us. But understand that as we're doing that, that we're looking for the things that are eternal. The problem is not that we have temporary things. The problem is that we prioritize the temporary things over the eternal things. That's the problem. And that is what Stephen's audience or judges, however you put that. That's how they had been viewing things. They were coming to the temple. They were reading the law of Moses. They were living in the land. And all of those things were those temporary things that had importance, that they were supposed to be coming to the temple. They were supposed to be reading the law. They were supposed to be living in the land. But all of it was supposed to be directing their attention to God. 
that they would be living their lives with him as his people. And instead, they had missed what it meant to have a real relationship with him. This is why we have Jesus saying, you can look good on the outside, but on the inside, what's it do? Like a whitewashed tomb. Like somebody who's doing the dishes and only washes the outside. Don't do that. That's gross. Because this is how you are. This is why uh, Stephen says, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, if you know anything about circumcision, I hope you know that what Stephen is saying here is not a literal, you should go circumcise your hearts and your ears. That would be messy. What he's saying is, circumcision was given as a sign, as an outward sign to the people of what was supposed to be going on in their hearts as a life that was committed to God, to be his people, to be marked out as his own. And those who understood the blessings and the curses that would come along with that. When he says, circumcise your hearts and your ears, he's saying, you've got the outside part but you've missed the inside part of what that was always to be pointing to. That's why you're just like your ancestors. That's this whole family resemblance thing that's going to make them so mad. Because he says all the way from the very beginning, they were doing what they shouldn't be. Every time God would give them something else to bring them closer to him, they would get distracted by the gift and miss the giver. And it says it came down even to the point that when your ancestors had prophets who were coming to them and saying, God is going to send Jesus, they killed those prophets. We actually even heard from Jesus him saying the same thing. Standing there in the temple. And then, Stephen drives it home. He says, now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. One of the things that Stephen was um, being accused of was going against the law. He says, I'm not going against the law. You're the ones going against the law. You've received it, but you haven't obeyed it. Another thing is he was going against the temple. And he says, you guys have missed the point of the temple. It's the same thing as the point of the tabernacle. It's to meet with God, and you're missing that. And then you missed what the tabernacle and the temple were both pointing toward. Which is what John tells us as he opens his gospel. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. All things were made. Let's go back a second. This is, this is what uh, it says. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet said, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? There's nothing we can give to God that he hasn't already made. Through him, all things, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping down a little bit. It says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. 
his own, did not receive him. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is a shame. That when this is translated into English, you don't get all the word plays. You still get the meanings. You don't get all the word plays. In verse 14, when it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, the word for dwelling is the same word for tabernacle. But it's in verb form. That he, the word, became flesh and tabernacled among us. The place where heaven and earth meet is no longer in a tent of meeting. It's no longer in a temple. It's in Jesus. The place where heaven and earth meet. And so, and look at this. To all who receive him, those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is where it becomes a much more appropriate Father's Day sermon. <laughs> In Jesus, we have the right to call ourselves the children of God. That that is who we are. That we can call him our Father. But we do have another caution. And the caution is, when you hear this, that's right. It's all about Jesus. It's all about my relationship with him. And therefore, all those other things don't matter. The building doesn't matter. Meeting together with other people doesn't matter. It's just me and Jesus. That's not it either, though. Because while it is me and Jesus, it's also us and Jesus. This is why the church, not any individual, but the church, is what is known as the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And so while we, we do need to make sure to continue meeting together, we want to do so being careful not to be like the disciples who only pay attention to the property and the grounds, that those are important. But keeping those in perspective, the temporary and the eternal. Let's not come to church. Certainly not, let's not stay away from church. Let's not come to church and miss Jesus. Let's not come to the building and miss the church. Let's come as his body, as his bride, as those who are the hands and feet of Jesus, and those who have been called children of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.